Through our introduction, we've finished, as we know, the book of Exodus is done, praise the Lord, after 100 messages. But what we're going to look at today is we're going to pick up kind of where we were. In Exodus 40, what happened was the tabernacle was finished. At that point in time, the Israelites had followed through and they had done what God had told them to do. They'd followed God's design. And what was so neat about that was the fact that we saw a new level of obedience in the Israelites. They were starting, starting to, to turn the corner and they're starting to learn and what was wonderful about this is not only is it reflect really in their closer walk with God, but it also reflects the fact that they now kind of have a plan of action on how to move forward. They're no longer necessarily wandering. They've got their eyes on the promised land. And what we'll find here is God will direct them. We know that by day he'll show up as a cloud and by night he'll show up as a pillar of fire. And he's going to direct them and give them not only guidance, but at the same time comfort. Right, that comfort of knowing that God is with us. Praise the Lord, that's true for us as believers. So we look at what we're going to do today is we're going to take a synopsis that God writes in 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, verses 1 through 12. God's going to give us a synopsis on really the journey through the wilderness. Uh, and uh, what's neat about this is we're going to kind of hit the high points in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy and in Numbers as well. So we're going to sort of pick that up, and that's going to lead us into the book of Joshua which our plan is next week that we'll be in the book of Joshua. Now, what's interesting about Joshua is we're still going to be in the wilderness for the first five chapters. So we're not going to transition out and actually go into the promised land until we move into Joshua chapter 5. And what's interesting is what we need to keep in mind is the fact that uh, it, it, we're going to see in this, what we're trying to do is see what God's ultimate plan is with this whole thing. Okay, The reason that God brought them out of Egypt was not just to get them out of Egypt. It was to get the Egypt out of them, okay? Because they have so many things. They have generations of people that were raised in this, and it's all they know. So we see here, is, as we're working through this message, what we're going to look at is the fact that the purpose of the wilderness was God trying to refine them. He's trying to refine their understanding. He's trying to teach them how to worship. He's going to teach them how to walk, and he's going to teach them how to accomplish his will. So we look at them, and what was important for us also to keep in mind is the fact that we not lose sight of the fact that they are uh, directly linked to us. The life of these Israelites, and we're watching through this journey in the wilderness, we've got to hang on to the fact that it's a parallel showing ourselves. And we see here what happened with us. What did God do? God freed us from our bondage. Our bondage was to sin, right? That was our Egypt. At the moment of salvation, God freed us. And then what happens? We transitioned. And we went into a wilderness. Well, for as the believer today, what is our wilderness? Our wilderness is our struggle against our flesh. It's our struggle daily to try to walk in the way that God would have us to walk and not follow what it is that we want. And that's a battle I think we're all very familiar with because we wake up with it every single day. But what's interesting about the Israelites is the fact that they were polluted, okay? They were polluted by generations of assimilation into that Egyptian culture. And what that result was, it's really, that's, that was the core of who they were. It's really all that they knew. And see, you and I were born into a sinful world, right? They were born into that generation there in Egypt, and they were assimilated into that culture. We're born into a sinful world. We have a sinful nature. What does it do? It draws us into that same thinking. We don't know any different but to do what that says. So all they knew was what the Egyptians had shown them, and all we know is what the world has shown us. So here we are. We get saved, and God brings in a change. Praise the Lord. That would be all we would know if it were not for God. 
because of His incredible love. And Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 tells us this. And you hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is us. Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. This is where we come from. Among also we all had our conversation in times past. This is who we, who we are. In the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Here's the good news. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you're saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show forth the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That is the exact same thing that God wants for the Israelites. What we're hearing in that portion of Scripture is God saying, hey, you know what I want you to do? I want you to take the old life that you used to be in. I want you to leave that old life behind because there's a new life intended for you. I want you to live for me instead of living for yourself. Sounds familiar, huh? It's exactly what God's trying to tell us. And what he's telling them is like, put your eyes on the promised land, this piece of land that God had promised them. He says, look, that's for you. And God's desire for them, when they reach the promised land, when they would go from living this life where they were taking and caring, caring for just their own cares, the fact that God would at that point in time, that they would live their life unto good works, as he had before ordained, that they should walk in them. Right? We see a parallel, but it's God speaking to us in the New Testament. He's talking of what he's trying to do in their lives as well. They are a picture of us. What God wanted for them is exactly what he wants for us, that we would leave our old lives in the past. Right? Leave our old lives in the past and live a new life, one that's about him and not about us. The way God describes it in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 says this, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Old things are passed away. All things become new. That's the whole thing. Understand that God's destination for them, his desire for them was the fact that they would come out of this wilderness. And in the wilderness, what's God going to do? He's preparing them for moving in. And what he's doing is refining their faith. He's going to refine their faith through challenges through challenges, and then what happens? The challenge will come, and they'll be refined in the fact of how their choices, their response to the challenge, will shape them in their understanding of who he is. And that's exactly what he does in our life. You and I are dealing with challenges every single day. Every single day. The question is, how do we respond? And this is exactly the way God teaches us. It's so weird, you know what? It's like it's almost like God's Like, it's all kind of connected together, right? There's a story here in the Israelites, which is our story. So when we hear these things, and as we go through this trip through the the wilderness, I want us to keep in mind the fact that this is talking to us. God's trying to help us. So the firm grasp and an understanding that this is all related, and as we're hearing their story, it's also tied to us. What we're going to do is look at this commentary as we go through this journey, and what God's going to teach us in this message today is which is titled, Lessons Learned in the wilderness. Let's pray. 
God, thank you for today and helping us, Lord, with this opportunity that we can just gather around the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the incredible insight uh, that you give us into what the future holds for us individually and, Lord, as a nation. And, God, I do thank you so much for the work that you've done in my heart throughout this week. And, Lord, as you've spoken to me in this message, Lord, I do pray that you'll speak through me. Lord, that this not be a message from me, but, Lord, that the Spirit of God would guide and direct, help our ears to be ready to hear, help our hearts be ready to receive, God. Help us, Lord, uh, to learn the lessons that we need to from the history that we've seen. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 12. Let's read through the scripture real quick. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither ye, neither be idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for examples. Do you hear that? All these things happened unto them for examples, examples, and they are written for our admonition for us to learn upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack <laughs> in those 12 verses. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at first, let's break it up. Okay, the first four verses, what you're going to see is this is referencing the victories in the wilderness, the victories in the wilderness. And then verses five through 12 is going to reference the defeats in the wilderness, okay? So the victories, let's start with the victories. Now what's interesting about the victories, all the victories come by way of God's power, okay? By God, okay? So the victories come from the Lord. Moreover, verse one, moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Okay, so right off the bat, we see brethren, He's writing to the church, okay? So we understand here he's referencing the fact this is written so that we need to receive it for ourselves, making, search, making certain that the church understands the biblical truth that's about to follow. Then he lays it out to us and he lets us know that this is going to come out of their own history. He says here, how that all our fathers, okay? All our fathers. And the key word I want you to pay attention to is that word all. Okay, in the next four verses, the word all shows up again and again and again, pointing to the fact that the Israelites have a shared experience. They all went through the victories. But also, it's telling us that, you know what? This is about the universality of these lessons, that they're for all of us, that we need to listen and learn. How that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Okay, based upon the details, we can see here that Paul is referencing the parting of the Red Sea, the crossing through there on dry ground. And being familiar with this passage, we understand the fact that uh, there was a cloud involved. We heard about that. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at verse of all the referencing God's guidance. The cloud is going to reference God's guidance. Then we're going to see where it says, and passed, all passed through the sea. So it's God's guidance, and it's going to be God's deliverance. God's deliverance. We saw back in Exodus 14, understand, concerning the children of God, they were at the shore of the Red Sea. They had been pinned in. They were in a situation where they had no escape. Remember, God directed them there. 
God put them there on purpose for him to show his glory as he would part the Red Sea. But let's look at the cloud in Exodus 14, verses 19 through 22. And the angel of God, which went before the camp of Israel, removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud, and it was a cloud and darkness to them. Okay, when it says them, it's referencing the Egyptians. But it gave light by night to these, so that one came not near the other all the night. So for the Egyptians, the presence of God, this light actually shows up as darkness. They see darkness, where in reality, it's light. And the same is true today. Because you know what? People see God not for who he really is. They don't see him as a light. Where we share love, we could be called hate. Does that make sense? So the very thing we see taking place in our culture today is an indication of this. Because what does the Bible teach us in 1 Corinthians 2.14? But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. See that? Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So if you do not have the Spirit of God, you cannot see the light of God. And what we find here is the Egyptians are going to pursue them. This display of God's guidance. But now what's going to happen is we have the passing through, right? The passing through. This is referencing the deliverance. Verse 21 says this in Exodus 14. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground. And the waters were a wall unto them on their right hand and on their left. And as we studied, we know here that they safely crossed through. And boy, here come the Egyptians. You know what? We're going to take the same path. And they come roaring in there with all of their armies. And the Bible says that the waters will close And when they close, the Bible says that no one escapes. They're all wiped out. And there's miraculous deliverance by God. So we see his guidance and we see his deliverance. And next, we're going to see God's power. God's power. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, uh, verse 10, verse 2, uh, chapter 10, verse 2. And we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And what's being referenced here is the fact that the Israelites' old master, Pharaoh, guess what? He's dead. And what they have a new master, a new person, a new one that they're supposed to follow. They're supposed to follow Moses. Guys, this is picturing to us that guess what? The old man, our old master is dead to us. We need no longer follow him because we have a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. We follow the Lord. Romans 6 verses 4 through 6 says this, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. And like as Christ was raised from up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. You hear that word should? You'll see that again and again and again in Scripture. Because we're not a bunch of robots. We're not controlled by God. God gives us free will. We should walk in them. Doesn't mean that we absolutely will. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man, remember, is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Okay? So we see the power of God to give a new life. So we've seen God's guidance, we've seen God's deliverance, and we've seen God's power at work. Victory, 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 right? Victories across the board. Then we get to the fourth one, God's provision. God's provision. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. And did all eat the same spiritual meat. That's referencing the manna that God provided in the wilderness. And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. 
So we see provision, supernatural provision, of the meat and the drink. Now, so if we review that spiritual meat, what it's talking about, it's actually in Exodus 16, verse 15, it says this. And then the people, or when the children of Israel saw it, they said one to another, it is manna, for the wist not what it was. And Moses said unto them, this is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. Right? Picturing the spiritual provision of God providing himself as the bread of life and himself as the word of God, our spiritual food. So we hear these things and we understand God's provision for them is picturing God's provision for us. And then there's the spiritual drink, okay? So right off the bat, Paul pretty much tells us who this is, <laughs> who it is and, and what it is, and the fact that he tells us here, all and did all drink the same spiritual drink, and they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Hello, if you don't get that one, you're, you're, missing, missing, you're missing out somehow. So miraculously, God's purpose. Now, this happened in Exodus chapter number 17, where God provided from the rock. Exodus 17, 6 says this, Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock of in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come forth, come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So in each of these occurrences of God's provision, what we see here is God's displaying his ability to provide. He's showing them, hey, you know what? I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. And what he's also doing is he's teaching them the beauty and the joy of being dependent upon God. He's teaching them, hey, you know what? There's nothing wrong with you needing me. It's actually what you were designed to be. So we see God's guidance. We see God's deliverance. We see God's power. And we see God's provision. What else could they possibly ask for, for goodness sakes? God's given them everything they could possibly need. How could they have any issue? Yet we get to verse 5. Now we're going to move into the defeats. Verse 5 says this, But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What? That's crazy. This is a bunch of slaves who are living in bondage for generations, crying out for deliverance. They're in the most desperate place they could possibly be in. They're at the end of their rope. They're broken, and they're absolutely without hope. In that moment of absolute de desperation, what happens? God. The God of, guiding hand of God reaches down and delivers them. He delivers them from being broken and hopeless to being restored and hopeful. God provides for them. He takes care of them. He does everything they need. He's got it covered. And yet, and yet, they begin dissatisfied, they get frustrated, and they get disillusioned. Yet they begin everything they need. How does that happen? Well, we should just ask ourselves, right? right? Because their story is our story, right? Listen to this, verse 6. Now these things were examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Learn from them. Learn from them. I'm trying to tell you something here. This is an example for you. I mean, goodness gracious. Has God not delivered us? Has he not guided us? Has he not displayed his power in our life? Has he not provided for us? Across the board. Yes, 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 yes. Yet this world is filled with countless Christians who spend the majority of their time complaining about their life and pointing to all the things wrong with the world and how their life is so bad. 
That sounds just like them. Finding ways to complain when God's made every provision. God's given us a promise and he will fulfill his promise. The very same way he is with them. The problem that we have is the fact that we're looking at the wrong things. And to understand it more completely, what we'll do is we're going to look at the issues that they struggle with. What are the things that caused their downfall? What were the areas that caused them to be overthrown in the wilderness? The first one is idolatry. Okay? Idolatry. Idolatry means to worship something, right? To worship something, put it above God. It says here in verse 7, Neither be idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now we know this is a reference to the golden calf, right? We know this took place back in Exodus chapter number 32. But what we saw there was the fact that, you know what? God had given the commandments. They knew what they were. They had received them. They'll have no other gods before me. And what do they do? Well, hey, let's make a God. So understand, they're accustomed to what they grew up in. In Egypt, that's the way it was. You worshiped idols. You made statues. You worshiped them. It was ingrained in them. So understand, when they don't have anybody to follow, they don't have somebody setting a new example, they will go back to what they know, right? And some people go, well, why is church important? Guys, the reason why God wants us to assemble is because we need leadership in our lives to help us to remember who it is we are. Because if we're not careful, we'll go back to who we were, right? And we'll find ourselves caught up in the world and overthrown in the wilderness, and understand, if you're joining us online, and I, hey, I know some of you guys are, are staying away, and that's fine. I have no problem with that. But don't be inconsistent in joining us online. Don't be inconsistent in being a part of what God's trying to do in our lives. Because if we're not careful, we will fall back into our old habits. Exodus 32, 7 and 8 says this, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt. Listen to this. Have corrupted themselves. They have not been corrupted. They have corrupted themselves. They have consciously done this. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, these be thy gods. Who brought them out of Egypt? It was God, but listen to what they said. O Israel, which have, and it says this, O Israel, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, referencing these thy gods. He says, these be thy gods. They're saying, look, this goat molten calf, we're going to give credit to this for getting us out of Egypt, even though they saw what God did. How easily we lose sight of who he is if we're not careful. Right. And we have to be ever conscious. Christians today have no time for God because they're consumed with the world. Consumed with the cares of the world. Worshiping success, career, material goods, politicians, whatever it is you want to worship. But we've drawn away from where it is we're supposed to have our heart and our eyes. Guys, the whole thing is the exodus was not about getting out of Egypt. It wasn't just about the leaving. Right. It was about the going into Canaan. That's the whole thing. In a marriage, it's not about the leaving your, your father and your mother. It's about cleaving unto your wife. The joy of the exodus was not to be the fact that they were leaving Egypt. The joy of it was supposed to be that they were going to get into Canaan. And they lost sight of that truth. Deuteronomy 6.23 says this, And he brought us out from thence that, we, that he might bring us in. Amen. That's it. He brought us out that he might bring us in, not get us stuck in the wilderness, to give us the land which he swear unto our fathers. Not looking over our shoulder at the past. The struggle that the Israelites have is they can't let go of Egypt. 
the draw of Egypt is still in their life. And the problem that 99% of Christians struggle with is the fact that they cannot let go of the draw of the world. Every day it draws on us, and we can either listen to it and respond to it and let it control us, or we can say, you know what, that's not who I am anymore. That's the old man. And you know what? He needs to be dead. I need to crucify that dude, because guess what? I need to move forward and live for the Lord. The whole problem is, are we consumed with the world and allowing the old man to guide us, or is the new man have control? Now, if we're struggling with figuring out if that's, well, I'm not sure. Well, the best way to figure it out is why don't you do an assessment of the most valuable thing God's given you? Time. Who has your time? Is it the world? Is it Facebook? Is it Twitter? Is it TV? Or is God? Does God have your time? Has he set aside a special time with you every day? Are you burdening your heart to him? Are you laying out your, your desires and your hopes? Are you dependent upon him? Are you reading his word? I don't know. I'm not here to beat you up. I'm just telling you, this is the reality that we live in today. We live in a culture that has turned its back on God, and we can see the results all around us. But our focus doesn't need to be on the culture. Our focus needs to be on the Lord. Because if things are going to turn around in this world, it won't because we do it. We have no power. It's Him. And see, God allows what He allows, and He stops what He stops upon His will, not ours. So before we get to this next point, we need to do a little bit of a kind of historical context to make sure we're in the right timeline, understand we are. So this, a year after the tabernacle was finished, okay, the Israelites, we finished in, in, in 40. A year after the tabernacle was finished, they're going to be at the border of Canaan, okay? Now, when they reach the border, what they're going to do is they're going to send in 12 spies. And they send those 12 spies in, and boy, they come back. Well, 10 of them give what's called an evil report. They say, oh my goodness, there's no way we can go into that place. We're going to die. Even though God said, I've already given it to you. Two men, Joshua and Caleb, said, hey, we, we can do this. Let's go today. Let's take the land. God's already prepared it for us. And the people go, you know what? No, 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 no. And this is what causes the rebellion. And the very next verses I'm going to read to you, this is God's edict because of their rebellion. This is what God says. Numbers 14, verses 34 and 35. After the number of the days in which ye searched the land, talking about the spies, even 40 days each day for a year, shall ye bear your iniquities. Even 40 years, right? 40 years, ye shall know my breach of promise. He says, you know what? I'm not going to fulfill my promise. For the next 40 years, I'm not doing what I said I'm going to do. Because guess what? You have rebelled against me. And listen to the result here in verse 35. I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do it unto all this evil congregation that are gathered together, listen to these words, against me gathered against me. You're not trusting me. You're not willing to follow me. You're standing against me. In this wilderness, they shall be consumed and there they shall die. They'll be overthrown in the wilderness. So the next reason they're overthrown, understand this is 38 years into it, okay? They've been exiled for 38 years when we get to this verse. What, what, what's the cause of this next, next issue, which is sexual sin? Verse 8, neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and 20,000, 23,000 dying in one day. Now, in Numbers chapter number 25, what we're going to find is the Israelites at this point in time, they're going to, they're going to gather in a place called Shittim. And in Shittim, what happens is all these Moabite women, and man, they're hot, man, they're good-looking girls. And the guys start going, dang, you see her? Woo, check it out. Woo, man, she's caught my eye, man. Well, next thing you know, those women start to work their way in. And the Israelites, guess what they do? They fall into sexual sin. And they're being pulled into paganism because what happened in, those, in that pagan culture? Sex and worship all kind of went together. So these people get totally jacked up. The Israelites are messed up 
big time. And what happens here is God's going, oh, he's about to bring judgment. Well, there's a guy named Finhas, and Finhas is one of the priests. And Finhas runs out, and there's a, he, he does a pretty, pretty graphic thing. Anyway, he basically brings an end to this thing and says, look, you know what, this has got to stop. But by the end of this thing, because of the fornication, at the end, Numbers, 24 tell, or Numbers 25 tells us how many died. It says, and those that died in the plague were 20 and 4,000. Now, what's interesting about this is you're paying attention. Paul references and says 23,000. And Numbers says 24,000. And people go, well, you know what? I mean, he's a man. He just didn't remember it right. He's getting pretty close. Right? Well, that would mean if it was this book was written by man, that would be true. But what you see is when you find something that looks like a contradiction, it's only an apparent contradiction because there's a detail in here that actually gives us an amplified understanding of verse of Numbers 25. Because Numbers 25 says that a total was 24,000. Paul says 23,000 died in one day. Okay? So 1,000 died up to that point. But the day after when it came to an end, God was like, this is it. Boom! And 23,000 died in one day. They die, everybody. Right? And so we understand that. We go, wow, oh my goodness. Sexual sin. God's serious about it. Yes, he is. He's very serious about it. And you understand, it's not just the act. It's the thought. It's the fantasy. It can think about something. Well, I've never done it. It doesn't matter. Because guess what? What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 28? But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Already in his heart. If you thought it, I'm going to hold you accountable for it. So God's saying, look, you know what? This sexual sin, it brought them and caused them to be overthrown in the wilderness. Whole thing is, it's weakness. Developing trust in our flesh as opposed to following the guidance of God. And the next reason they were overthrown in the wilderness, number three, they were tempting the Lord. Verse 9 says this, Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Okay? Paul's referencing an occurrence that actually took place um, before, just before, uh, what took place what we just read in Numbers 25. And this is going to come from Numbers 21 is where we're going to find this. But as we read Numbers 21, I want you to understand the hearts of the people. Okay? We're going we're to start in uh, Numbers 21 verse 5 is where we're going to be. But this is going to give us an indication of the hearts of the people, okay? Remember, they're a picture of us. Remember, discontented. Numbers 21.5. And the people spake against God. Listen to that. People spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. That manna that you gave us, our soul loatheth this light bread. Your provision, we hate it. We hate your manna. When they received it at first, oh, what a blessing. It's amazing. It just shows up and we can just pick it up and God provides for us. It's amazing. Now their soul loatheth it. Check this out. Numbers 11. Verses 6 through 8. But now, listen, this, and this is amazing, because understand, this complaining, it's not new. <laughs> they even complained about the manna for a very long time. In fact, before they even got to the border, that first time, that one, that, in that, so from the time that the, the tabernacle was finished, in that year's time, they're already going to develop an issue with the manna. Yeah. 
that quickly. Listen to this, back in Numbers 11, verses 6 and 8. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills or beat it in a mortar and baked it into pans and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was the taste of fresh oil. So, man, they're cutting it into curly fries. They're making it into pizzas. They're doing everything. they buy, Funnel cakes, whatever they can possibly make out of manna. But guess what? In the end, it always tastes the same. It always tastes the same. And they're frustrated by this no matter what they do. Why? Why is that the case? Why doesn't God make it taste better for them? Why doesn't it become satisfactory to them? Why are they satisfied by it? Because Nehemiah 9.21 says this, Yea, 40 years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness. Sustain them. And so that they lack nothing. Their clothes waxed not old. Their clothing didn't wear out. And their feet swelled not. They could walk all day long and they didn't suffer the physical attribute of it. God provided for them and made it possible. You see, the fact was, God created the manna for the sole purpose of sustaining them until they reached the land flowing with milk and honey. He said, I'll tell you where satisfaction is. It isn't here. It's there. Right? He set that lure and said, look, that's where you're going to find it. And yet, what do they do in the wilderness? Can we just get a little satisfaction? I can't get no satisfaction, man. Can we just get a little bit? The whole thing is, God's saying, look, you know what? The whole purpose was to bring them out of Egypt to get them into Canaan. But because they didn't trust God, they didn't trust him. The land that was theirs, they don't possess it because they allowed their fears to take hold of them. And what they did is now they find their time wasting their energy and efforts trying to find satisfaction in the place they're not supposed to find satisfaction. In the wilderness. Remember, God's goal for them is to get them out of Egypt to get them into the promised land. He's going to provide their needs, not their wants. So what Philippians 4.19 says this, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Needs, not wants. He's saying, look, set your eyes on the abundant life I have for you a place of surrender, a place of sacrifice, a place of walking with God, a place of holiness. But we seek happiness, and because we seek happiness, we're constantly feeding our flesh, and we're never happy. God's saying, look, seek holiness, and guess what I'll do? I'll fulfill you. I'll give you what you're looking for. 2 Corinthians, or Colossians 3, 2 says this, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. He's saying, look, don't look at the wilderness. Don't get stuck here. Keep your eyes on where I'm calling you, because God knows that if we find satisfaction in the wilderness because we're lazy, we'll stay. We'll stay. So he does not make it so that we can find that. And what we find is this, the, 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 the very thing that was mentioned in our scripture there, this, this fall that's going to take place, this next reason for, for disaster or for defeat, and the reason why the serpents come into the camp, it's all birthed in dissatisfaction. Every bit of it, okay? Remember, Their frustration with the manna, what they just complained about, right? They're, oh, that's their issue. We're going to go back and read that verse real quick. Numbers 21, verses 5 through 8. Here's where the serpents come in. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt, Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. Verse 6, in response to what they just said. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. 
and they bit the people and much of the people, much people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, and look at this, we have sinned. We're wrong. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. He says, look, make, a, uh, it's make it out of brass. And he says, and it shall come to pass that every one that is, sit, that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. Okay. Now, there is a picture here. There's a picture here. What we find is the fact that this is a picture of salvation by way of the cross. Because those that are afflicted with the poison of sin, guess what? They can be healed if they will look to the cross and Jesus lifted up, right? They look to the solution. John tells us this. He literally lays it out. It's John 3, 14 and 15 says this. And as Moses, Jesus, or Jesus says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Right? So the serpents come, the sin is there, and it's a picture of us turning to God. And then lastly, our final one, murmuring. Murmuring. Verse 10. <laughs> Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Murmuring is not simply just talking or complaining. It's, a part, it's an issue with the heart. Dissatisfaction, disillusion, frustrated, complaining, right? Now, this is an oncoming struggle for the, for the Israelites. They, uh, this, they, they, they live with this every day. The problem is this is the most insidious and the most widespread. And guess what? That's the same thing is true for us. Same thing is true for us. Listen to this. Now, the occurrence that we're going to look at here, this is actually, um, this is what led to the exile in Numbers 14. So when 34 and 35, where he said, look, you're going to die, it started with that in Numbers 14 too, okay? And it says here, this is after they went across, they looked across the border and everybody got scared. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron and the whole congregation said unto them, would God that we had died in the land of Egypt or would God we had died in the wilderness, Okay. And what's interesting is they're murmuring against Moses and Aaron is not murmuring against Moses and Aaron. They're in actuality murmuring at God by way of them. Okay? In Exodus 16, 8, Moses explains it to us. He says, And Moses said, This shall be when the Lord shall give you in the evening flesh to eat or in the morning bread to the full, for that the Lord heareth your murmurings, which ye murmur against him. And what are we? He says, Look, you're not murmuring at us. We can't do anything. Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. Right? And unlike the other three that we studied, and like those other three, what happens now? This is not just rebellion. This is an absolute lack of faith. It's one thing to stand in opposition to God. It's another thing to doubt God completely. And that's what they're doing in this instance. They are doubting God. And what they're basically saying is, hey, God can't meet our needs. Or God won't meet our needs in either occurrence, right? Either way, the way they handle this, either way they're saying this, it's absolute blasphemy. It is absolute blasphemy against God because they're saying, look, you know what? We stand in direct opposition to what God said he would do. We're saying that God's a liar. Blasphemy. Yet how many of us say things like that every day? We complain about situations. We look at circumstances and we go, but you know what? This is unusual. 
I have every right to be afraid. I have every right to be angry. I have every right to respond this way because I don't think God saw this one coming. Isn't that the way? We justify it in our mind. I'm justified in responding this way. I'm justified in saying this. I'm justifying in feeling this. You know, maybe you're diagnosed with a disease. You find out you're terminal. And instead of trusting God in that moment, you become fearful and overwhelmed by your circumstance. Maybe you lose your job. And suddenly you think, what's going to happen? Isn't God still say he's going to provide for us? Right? Doesn't he? Maybe you have suffered an emotional hardship like Meredith who lost her husband last night. And you feel broken and scared. But God's still there. Maybe it's a pandemic. All the fear that comes along with that and all the things that people are struggling with. Does God know? Did he see? Does he realize what's going on with me? Maybe it's the political unrest in our world today. Maybe God doesn't see this. Isn't God still on the throne? Isn't he still sovereign over all? And that's the thing. It's our lack of faith, man. When our lives are poisoned with discontent and we're plagued with faithlessness, we guarantee our fate. We say, look, I'm going to be overthrown. I'll just be one of the crowd that will die in the wilderness. I'll never reach the promised land because I can't get my heart and my eyes off this place. God's given the victories. Remember, it was for all. For all. If you're a child of God, you've experienced every one of these. God's guidance, God's deliverance, God's power, God's provision. Yet, we lose sight. We lose sight of it. And what happens? They forgot all of those things that God had promised. And they got caught up in their fears, which led to their defeat. And see, the joy of the Exodus was never the leaving. It was always the arrival into the promised land. But they lost sight of that. Moses didn't say, hey, let's go spend the next long time in the wilderness. Hey, come on, let's just go out and just aimlessly wander around. What do you say? It'll be great. No, he said, we're going to come out of here because we're going to the promised land. And they're like, yeah! But when you lose sight of where it is you're trying to get to, You find yourself just aimlessly wandering around trying to find some place in the wilderness that'll make you happy. Because you know what? Going that way seems scary. There's giants in that land. There's armies in that land. There's walled cities in that land. And if you were doing it in your flesh, you would not survive. But if you're doing it with God, He's already promised them the land. And we get into the book of Joshua. Rahab the harlot, when she talks to those two spies, you know what she says? For 40 years, right? They've been out in the wilderness for 40 years. And for that whole 40 years, the city of Jericho has been shaking in fear. We've heard of your God. We knew you were coming. This whole place is trembling. And they stood at the border 40 years before that and said, We'd be dead meat. We don't have a chance in the world. Yet God had already promised. Yes. See, that's the thing we've got to realize. God wants us to have the victory. He wants us to experience the abundant life. It's the purpose of this thing. The wilderness wasn't a place of satisfaction. 
It was a place just simply to get you to where you needed to be. It's a place to change and refine and beat the garbage out of us that we bring out of the world. The stupid habits they had from Egypt, they had to be beaten out of them. So when they got there, hey, guess what? Now you can worship me instead of worshiping that garbage. And what happens is we leave the world and we take so much of this stuff with us. And we say, I'm going to go into the abundant life, but I'm going to carry all this with me. No, God says, you know what the wilderness is going to do? We're going to beat it all out of you. The wilderness is for different peoples for different lengths of time. There will be Christians that got saved 60 years ago. They're going to die in the wilderness because guess what? They never let go of the world. And not until you let go of the world will you pass that border. Why am I telling you all this? Verses 11 and 12. Now all these things happened unto them for examples. examples. And they are written for admonition that we might learn from this upon whom the ends of the world are come. Verse 12, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. You see, the story of the Israelites is a sobering story of warning to keep us from falling prey to the same garbage that took them down, the same defeats. We've experienced the victories, praise God. And I would love to tell you that a majority of Christians reach the abundant life. I'd love to tell you that a majority of Christians make it. But I'd be lying to you. Yeah. Because, you know, what does it say? Sadly, in verse 5, it says, But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And it says many. And it might be more fit to use the word most. Most. A majority of people will not reach that. They'll get caught up in the wilderness. God's promise is the abundant life. When we live by faith, right, experiencing the victories, fully trusting God as we go forward in our life, or will we be those that are defeated because we fall prey to our fears and faithlessness takes hold, and because of that, we're overthrown. See, the problem with history is that if we don't learn from history, we are destined to repeat it. This is given for our admonition that we may learn from their failure. We're pictured in their walk. The wilderness is our story. How do we respond? Do we sit today and sit and go, yeah, that's great. Good to know. Thanks. I'll check it off. Or do we have ears to hear? The lessons learned in the wilderness. Because I'm just telling you, if we don't learn the lesson, we'll be just like them, overthrown. And we'll have no one to blame but ourselves. Because God has done all the work. He's given the victories. We live in the victories or we choose the defeats. The victories came from God. The defeats came from the people. We choose victory or defeat. Let's pray. Lord, I, uh, I thank you for this message and, Lord, uh, the way you've spoken to me through it. God, I do pray that it's been a challenge to all of us, uh, Lord, that we would see what you intend for us, what you've already prepared for us. Lord, you have done all the work, and all we need to do is just be obedient. God, help us. Help us, God, to see this world for what it is. It is not our home. This is not where we set up camp. 
we set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Because, Lord, you have something so great for us. Lord, you have a desire that these lives would not just be about us surviving in this place and finding happiness, but that these lives would be used for your glory, that the lost, the broken, and the hopeless might find hope, joy, and restoration. God, thank you for giving us life. Thank you for allowing us to live in the world at this time, Lord. Though it is dark, praise God that light has the greatest influence when it is the darkest. So God, I pray that you'll help us. Help us to rise to the occasion that's set before us. Lord, as Esther was told by Mordecai, for such a time as this, perhaps this is your moment. Will we take it? Or we just try to blend in and be overthrown? God, I thank you for this message and I pray that you'll please challenge us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to depend upon you as the days grow cold and grow dark. Help us to shine brighter and hotter than we ever have before. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed. If you're here today, you're online, wherever you are, and you say, you know what? Pastor, this message spoke to me. I know I need to address issues in my own heart, but I'm not even sure that I'm a child of God. I don't even know that I'm saved. You said that the Egyptians couldn't see God for who he really was. They couldn't see it. They saw the light as darkness. Maybe that's kind of the way I see the world. It's kind of dark. But let me tell you, there is hope, brother, sister, whoever you are. There is hope because God loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That love that God has is extended to this entire planet, no matter who you are, no matter how broken you may be, no matter how many sins you may have committed, irrelevant to him, because he loves you in spite of yourself. That's what he did for me. And 19 years ago, I called out to God and he received me and changed my life. And if you're watching us online, you say, you know what, I've never done that. I have never prayed and trusted the Lord to save my soul, but I want to. I know he's calling me. I see this world and I don't want to bid, I don't want to fit in here because I recognize that there's something so much better for me. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. Understand it's not a ceremony. It's not a magic prayer. Nothing like that. This is a matter of the heart of a man or woman or boy or girl willingly crying out to God. The way the Israelites cried out for salvation and God was there for them, he'll do the very same thing for you. And not only will he save you, but he will restore you and make you new. But you got to pray with your whole heart. And if you really want him, he'll come. He's waiting on you. So their heads bowed and their eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray. Now, again, it won't be the words of the prayer that will save you. It'll be the intention of your heart. God's listening to your heart. If you repeat after me in your heart and mind, if you want to receive Christ, we'll do that right now. Repeat after me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And Lord, I have no doubt that I deserve hell. I've done plenty of things wrong. And I'm sorry. But I believe in you. And I put my faith in you. That you died on the cross for my sins. That you were buried. And that you rose again on the third day proving you were God. I'm asking you right now in the best way I know how to come into my heart to forgive me of my sins and save my soul. Lord, thank you for saving me. I'll see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.